It would almost be weird if I actually led with the normal intro of the podcast and I said, we just found out that blah, blah, blah is hiring Coach X. That was never going to happen. Everybody knew that we were going to record. And then, of course, Florida or LSU was going to announce their next head coach shortly thereafter. And don't you know it? That's what happened with Florida. Yahoo first reported that Billy Napier is expected to become the head coach at Florida. Ross Dellinger reported that he's meeting with team officials as of this recording. And they are basically having a players-only meeting at Louisiana to let them know that he is indeed going to become the next head coach at Florida. And it's crazy because this all happened so quickly. To have this coaching search last a week when some of these, you know that the vetting has been going on for, for months even at places like LSU and USC and to see Florida be so deliberate is a testament to, to Scott Strickland and, and having a vision for this replacement for Dan Mullen. And I, I think that there are a lot of different ways to look at this. Billy Napier is not a splashy hire. He is not. Splashy, as I always say, does not win football games. Get the hire right. Don't worry about selling tickets. Don't worry about if he checks this box or that box. Billy Napier checks a lot of boxes. He does. And if he didn't, he wouldn't have been a candidate at places like Auburn and South Carolina and Mississippi State. He went back to Louisiana in part because it had a really good football team. And he felt, if I'm going to go to a job like that, I want to make sure that all of these things are in place. Florida has those things in place. Florida has this new beautiful $85 million football-only facility that's going up. We know about the in-state recruiting ground. We know about the history, the prestige, all those things. Billy Napier was not just going to hop to the SEC the first time it came calling, and his track record shows that that's true. And if you look at his track record, you might do this thing. And I, I, I want to get out ahead of this because I'm sure that by the time people are listening to this, this connection has been has been made and talked about. And, and I'm sure maybe for, for Florida fans listening to this who have texted with their buddies or something like that or talking to their parents about whether or not they think that Billy Napier can be the right guy at Florida, you might have made the Jim McElwain connection. And it's there. Look, I get it. There are three different things that connect Billy Napier and Jim McElwain. Besides the fact that like McElwain, Napier is indeed a Nick Saban disciple. Yes, guy who worked at Alabama under Saban. There's also the fact that they're coming from a group of five program that they turned around to this Florida job. And oh, by the way, in case that wasn't enough, Billy Napier worked on Jim McElwain's staff at Colorado State in 2012. So the connections are there. And some people might look at factors like that and say, well, it's destined to fail. I hate that. Anybody listening to this knows that when these coaches are hired, I tend to be more of the down the middle type of person who's saying, you know, because I've, I've learned from my, admittedly my own mistakes. I've gone into some of these things things saying home run hire can't fail destined to succeed and then others where i've been like oh that's just never going to work and usually we're proven wrong on these things we never have these things figured out there is no blueprint but i do like a lot of the things that billy napier has working for him and i think that if you are looking strictly at the McElwain path and saying he's followed this we've seen this before it can't work let me let me give you some some points to the contrary of that 
One is that he's not just a Saban disciple. Napier worked for Jimbo Fisher. He worked for Dabo Sweeney. Fired by Dabo Sweeney, in fact. The moment that probably turned his career around. Imagine being a 31-year-old offensive coordinator. I'm 31 years old as, as we sit and breathe here today. And I can't imagine getting to that type of high as an offensive coordinator at the Power 5 level and at a prestigious job like Clemson and then being told, hey, nope, you're, you're done. This, this rapid rise to the top, you're, it, hey, it's, it's just not there. We got to go in a different direction. And think about the coaches who have come before Billy Napier at Florida. Dan Mullen, pretty arrogant. Jim McElwain, got to be the smartest guy in the room. Will Muschamp, ah, you know, similar. But there's been a theme with coaches who haven't necessarily been a personality fit at Florida. And it's not having the wherewithal to look around and be like, hey, I've never been humbled before. You know, I've never been told, hey, your way doesn't necessarily work. And that was a detriment to Dan Mullen. I thought that was something that really hurt him at his time in Florida was not necessarily being able to evaluate his staff, his players with the the, the attention that he needed to. And I, I think that Billy Napier, if you're looking at the positives, man, this guy's already been humbled. He spent a, a decade trying to build himself up and he did the whole Saban analyst program at Alabama. And this is somebody who went out to the West Coast and spent time at Arizona State just to kind of broaden his horizons to get a new feel for the sport. And at the same time though, he's got these ties in the Southeast, not just because he's somebody who was born in the state of Tennessee, and because he spent the last several years building up a Louisiana program that hadn't won more than seven games at the FBS level before he arrived. Oh, by the way, Billy Napier just capped off his third consecutive season with double digit wins. They got a chance to go and have a top 15 finish in consecutive years at Louisiana, the Raging Cajuns, that, that a team who plays in that random bowl game that you don't care about on Christmas. All right, like this is, this is a different type of dude. And the more you read about him, the more you kind of listen to people talk about him, he just seems kind of like a no-nonsense guy. And I know that's a cliche thing that gets thrown out there, but he's been compared to Saban from a mindset standpoint. His attention to detail, the workaholic mindset, what hopefully will come of that is somebody who rethinks the approach to recruiting, rethinks the approach to developing talent, and to evaluating talent. Those are, those are three biggest things for Billy Napier. He does those things, you can have a chance to sustain success at Florida, and it's not gonna chew you up and spit you out. Easier said than done, right? This is the sixth post-Spurrier hire at Florida. That's a crazy thing to think about. That's 20 years, sixth different head coach. So how can Billy Napier be different than those coaches? Well, by not necessarily defaulting to, hey, I've done it my way for this amount of time, and this is going to work, and the second fans question you, uh, turn on them. That's not gonna work, that just won't. And of course, so much of this always seems to depend on how you develop the quarterback position at Florida. Pretty well-documented issue there. And a lot of people will kind of hold out judgment until they see that play out. And I don't necessarily blame them because that's such a big part of the college game, but Billy Napier is considered an offensive mind and a darn good one at that. But this is still going to be about how do you build up your staff? How do you evaluate your staff? I like Billy Napier as a hire. I've been surprised 
that he didn't take other jobs, and that speaks to his personality. It's not just, oh, hey, he's one of those people that's kind of always in the interview room, but never really quite getting in there. I, I think that Billy Napier, if he wanted to, could have already been in the SEC. And the fact that he waited for a place like Florida speaks to his readiness for this opportunity. I'm excited for this chapter. I don't necessarily think it's one that's destined to succeed based on the, the factors that I laid out. Time will tell. He's got to make hires. He's got to recruit. He's got to develop all those cliche things. But Florida does indeed appear to have a new head coach in Billy Napier who is ready for this. And that's as encouraging of a sign as any. So, of course, yeah, I know. I got the rest of the pod for you. You knew that it was going to happen. There's even a part later in the pod where Will mentioned, oh, hey, what about the Florida and LSU jobs? Like, do we think those are going to come open? And I basically was like, Will, you know what's going to happen here. So uh, brace yourself for that. It's coming. Go back in time a little bit. But here is the rest of the Rivalry Week recap pod. What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South Podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, we're recording this on a Sunday morning. I want to add, I want you to answer a multiple choice question. Oh, God. Already? Pretty simple. Let's do it. Who had themselves the best Saturday night? A, Ed Odron. B, Jim Harbaugh. C, Mike Gundy. D, Greg Knox, Florida interim coach. Mm-hmm. E, Greg Sankey, because 13 or 14 SEC teams are going bowling. Man, it's got to be Harbaugh, right? I, I feel like it's got to be Harbaugh. Got to be Harbaugh. And I don't actually have an official answer to that. I think they all, all those those gentlemen had themselves an adult beverage of their choice. Whole milk for Harbaugh, I was about to say, he had like some spiked milk, I bet. He was drinking like Santa Claus. I don't know. Uh, I think I don't think Harbaugh wants to dilute the taste of milk. I think he just wants to be able to have <laughs> Pure, milk. He has the finest the milk available. The way that God intended whole milk to be. Yes, it was an awesome rivalry week Saturday. All, all weekend really was fantastic. It was the type of day where NFL fans just wish they could watch pandemonium like that. Mm-hmm. And look, we both, I'm, I'm repping the Bears right now. We both like the NFL a little bit. There is, there is nothing that compares to a peak college football Saturday like that from start to finish, from the Ohio State-Michigan game all the way to the end to Bedlam. It was just a fantastic day of college football. Go figure that we're, we're all talking about you know how the, the, the sport is so top heavy and, and we need to, to have more, you know, more new blood in the playoff and all this stuff in Ohio State, Oklahoma, Clemson. They are not going to be playing for a conference title, mm-hmm. much less playoff berth. That is nuts. We're going to recap all the SEC action, including the two pre-Saturday rivalry games as well. But we got to start with the Iron Bowl, right? Right. What a ball game it was. My word. Just, just when we think Auburn is done, stick a fork in them, they've lost three in a row, we get a four-overtime thriller for the ages. First time this rivalry has ever gone to overtime. I don't know where to start with this one other than to say, did anyone think that Alabama was going to come back in, in the fourth quarter? It, really? I mean, <laughs> I, I get it. It's Bama. Saban's going to find a way. But at the same time, 
given where that game was taking place and when they have the botch hold and it's 10 to nothing, mm -hmm. you're like, oh my God, they might not score tonight. This is really happening. Well, I had probably three or four different, oh, this is happening moments, even up until that, that last touchdown pass that, well, I guess the first touchdown pass. <laughs> the that, touchdown that Bryce pass. through in regulation. Yeah, the, the touchdown pass. I thought Bama was losing that football game. I really did. It just felt like Auburn's night. It felt like weird things were happening in Jordan-Hare Stadium. Mm -hmm. Did you think that Bama was going to come back and win that football game? So my Iron Bowl experience was hilarious because I'm back home uh, with my parents and my mom was in the kitchen and literally the entire fourth quarter, right? I think Bama had three points. She was just yelling from the kitchen, Bama's going to win this game. I'm just telling y'all. And I was like, how? why can't you just let me enjoy this? And then Auburn, when they get that stop and then they get stopped, I was like, oh my God. Bam is gonna win this game. <laughs> like it pros I think it was because I was being indoctrinated so early, and like I've just seen so many of these games, man, where it's like, I mean, just to be honest, like it's <laughs> we joked about like Bama, Bama fatigue, and it's like no one in the world could accuse me of that. I've been rooting against Bama for 10 years at this point, and I've rooted against Bama in games like this, and I'm just like, oh no, this team has lost their juice. And that's exactly what happened to Auburn. And it was like, oh, like their play calling got stale. They didn't like they came out with all this swagger man and and whenever Bryce Young was in his own end zone you know try getting um getting rid of the ball over and over again when they didn't get that safety and Auburn's pass rush just kind of collapsed after that it was like oh no <laughs> I thought there were a lot of different different things throughout the course of that game that made you think Auburn has turned a new leaf Nothing can get them fired up like Mama. Derek Mason, tip of the cap to him for the game plan that he dialed up mm -hmm. to be able to get pressure on Bryce Young. All those things that we said Derek Mason did wrong in that blown 28-3 lead against Mississippi State. He seemed to correct with the way that he brought pressure and made life really difficult on a guy who might end up winning the Heisman Trophy. But yeah, you get into the fourth quarter and I, I saw the stat, Auburn 118-0 all-time when leading by 10 points in the fourth quarter. Jeez. And instead, it turns into a third consecutive game in which Auburn blows a double-digit lead. And yeah, it was tough to, to protect that lead with, it would have been tough to protect that lead with a healthy TJ Finley, much less one with a banged up ankle who could not move at all. TJ Finley mm -hmm. is not a mobile quarterback to begin with. <laughs> and the fact that he had that ankle, he was a statue for basically the entire second half of that game. And to Mike Bobo's credit, and that's, <laughs> that feels <laughs> weird to say, there's not a whole lot you can do with a quarterback in that spot. Mm -hmm. there, there really is not, especially when you know that you have Will Anderson, who's going to be coming off the edge every single time, and Phil Mathis. Those guys can just get to you, and they can blow up plays in the backfield. So Auburn was holding on for dear life, and, and everybody kind of knew that, but it still felt like everything was going Auburn's way. The botch snap with Paul Tyson, the great-grandson of Bear Bryant, who ends up getting pulled in this football game. Jameson Williams gets ejected for targeting on punt coverage. Bro, that, Bizarre. like, I texted you that. I was like, oh, my God. That's, like, what? Because his name's, you know, Williams. I was like, yeah, who is this? And then I was like, oh, that's that Williams. That's what Bama does. Mm -hmm. Bama has these guys who play on, on coverage team. I mean, Damian Harris used to be phenomenal on coverage team mm -hmm. back in the day. So yeah, that's that's one of the, the casualties of it. And he had another play where I think it was like he, he downed a punt within the five or something as well. Mm -hmm. So people that say, oh, you can't have these guys out there on special teams. Well, yeah, it kind of goes both ways. You have your best athletes on the field. That's just part of the responsibility. You have very established players at Bama who do that. 
Nonetheless, it's the SEC's leading receiver who is out of this game for the entire second half. You have Brian Robinson also get hurt in this one with an ankle injury. So Trey Sanders, our IMG guy, who yeah. has had a, a really rough go for most of his career at Bama. The guy who said he was going to win the Heisman Trophy as a true freshman, the five-star kid, the former number one running back in the 2019 class. He was the last scholarship running back on that roster during that game. And on top of that, the offensive line was terrible. Yeah. The offensive line couldn't block a soul. That was the worst Alabama offensive line I've ever seen. No questions asked. Like, just dominated up front. I, I thought T.D. Moultrie could get whatever he wanted throughout that entire game. And it, was, it wasn't necessarily a matter of, oh, is Bryce Young going to get hit? It's just how hard is he going to get hit? on a given play, because every single time he dropped back to pass, they knew Bama couldn't run the football. And Bama was dominated up front. And 59 minutes and 36 seconds without a touchdown, and still, it finds a way to win this game. Bama finds a way. The Bryce Young throw to tie it was silly. I mean, that's to Ja'Cory Brooks, a true freshman who had two catches entering Saturday. And he put that throw on the money. I, I thought that was a Heisman moment. And I know that that was his first touchdown of the day. Some people are going to listen to that. And you're gonna, they're going to say, how could, how could you possibly go there? A lot of people mocking the idea that Young actually helped his Heisman cause on Saturday. Those people didn't watch the game. And they probably just looked at the box score. Oh, because yeah. in my opinion, Bama would have lost that game easily without Bryce Young. I mean, really. I know he had the fumbled snap on fourth and two. He maybe held on to the ball a little bit too much at certain points of that game. But when you take into the context, kind of the year that he's had, 42 total touchdowns, top five offense, top four team, I I think he's the leader in the clubhouse after Saturday when CJ Stroud loses to Michigan. Mm -hmm. And yeah, losses aren't necessarily everything, but he's not gonna get a conference championship. And we talked about that with Bear Felica. If you're gonna win the Heisman this year, you're probably going to be playing in a conference championship because of how up in the air this thing felt. And even if Bryce Young doesn't necessarily beat Georgia, I still kind of look at that game and I'm like, well, should we really be judging him based on how he performs against a defense that has allowed 69 points all year if you take away the non-offensive touchdowns? I wouldn't necessarily go there, but I thought Bryce Young in that moment just showed you everything you would ever want. The ice water in the veins thing, cliche, like, (laughs) Will, if that guy's your quarterback, you just got to feel like you're never going to lose, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, this is like a, I don't know if this is bold or whatever, but that's at least my favorite Bryce Young game ever. I don't know if it's his best game necessarily, but it felt like he was playing against all of Auburn and half of Alabama for that entire game. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it like, and it's ridiculous to hear that. I understand that. I understand how well they recruit. I understand how much their coaches get paid on their analysts. I get that. Their offensive line looked like they were spies. For that entire game. Terrible. They were like, they weren't on the same page. They weren't communicating. I've never seen a Bama quarterback work that hard. Like, he would snap the ball. There would be pressure in his face immediately. He would have to instantly, you know, do a spin move and then hit a guy downfield. And his number one receiver got ejected for targeting. You throw that on there and it's like, oh my God. And and the crazy thing about, I think the best part of his day, and like like you said, he had issues. You know, he's a kid at the end of the day. But that last drive, man, if he had taken one sack, if if he had made one bad decision Done. that game is over with and he found a 97 way 97 yards what's up 97 yards yeah on that last drive coming out of his own end zone yeah. and there was pressure in his face every single play and he kept finding a way to just keep the drive alive get the ball out of his hands and it was like i was blown away man i'll be honest 
that, that drive alone to me was was incredible. Finding Billingsley who hadn't had a catch all day on that fourth down play and even out of his own end zone on when they're on their own three and he's scrambling and nobody's really open and Mechie kind of finds the soft spot in the zone and they're able to move the sticks and that kind of gave them the breathing room that they needed. But I, I was so impressed. And for all the, the usual talk about how Bama quarterbacks get all this help, it's interesting that it played out the way that, that it did because if mm-hmm. you watch that game, you're like, he has no help. Yeah. There is nobody on that field that can help him. And I know Matt Mechie ran a ridiculous route for the walk-off touchdown there at the end, but but still, I mean, think about this. Like, Ohio State's has Ohio State and C.J. Stroud has three better receivers to work with than Bama probably does. Because James, we know that because James Williams wasn't going to start at Ohio State. Right. That's why he left. Right. He wasn't going to play. And so I kind of look at that and I'm like, well, we should probably give Bryce Young a little bit more credit then if all things are equal because we know he doesn't have a a cast and crew quite as good as what's there at at Ohio State. So, I mean, uh, to me, that that just, that that was a, a signature moment. And you know, I, I thought in that atmosphere, being able to find a way was was incredible. And you, you're seeing a kid grow up, and then he was excellent in overtime. He was really, really good. Not sure why Brian Harson thought he could match Bama's production or better in overtime with T.J. Finley um, offering little to nothing. Harson not going for two in that first overtime, inexplicable. Right. Horrible. I know we play the results. I know we do. Everybody and their mother wanted Auburn, except everybody on that Bama sideline. <laughs> everybody wanted Auburn to go for two in that spot. And why wouldn't you? Why would you think that you're going to be able to go blow for blow and win that game when, look, like you're six and five, man? Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Who we cares? just saw Eli Drinkowitz. Eli Drinkowitz had bowl eligibility on the line and like his only chance for that big signature win this year. And even he was like, yeah, screw it. We're going for two. Right. Like <laughs> against, against Florida, of course. And Brian Harson got conservative in that moment, and I thought it hurt his team. Like nobody's gonna blast you for being over aggressive in that spot, and especially when Bama just had all the momentum, all the momentum, and they finally figured some things out. I thought that was a coaching miscue. And when you look back on the reasons why Auburn lost this game, even if you don't get that, I still think that has to be one of them. Will like. Is an opposing fan, when you're watching those moments, and you're not an opposing fan in this game, so that was a bad way to phrase that, mm-hmm. but when you see a coach take the ball out of his quarterback's hands in that spot, or essentially just decide, I'm going to keep putting the ball right. in my Right, that's the decision, hands. yeah. Yeah. You, you know that, that, that that's, that's going to come back to bite you, right? Like, when, once that happened, there was no doubt in my mind that Bama was winning overtime, probably. Oh yeah, no, a hundred percent agree, and and it's one of those situations too where it's like you've just watched Bryce Young have this like Heisman type performance drive all the way down the field, and like love T.J. Finley, nice guy. Every time he catches a snap, I feel I hear that, I hear that dial-up tone in my head. It's like, like it's like you watch him process, and it takes him like ten seconds, and it's like, dude, yeah. you can't do that at. Like a, a two-point conversion situation or like, sorry, like a short field situation that in the next wave of overtimes. It's like, dude, you need to just get off the field. And honestly, like, I'm trying to be, you know, give Auburn credit here, but dude, those last play calls from Bobo, the way that Auburn stayed in that game was so inexplicable. Like, I sent you a series of texts. It was like, yeah, like, 
They had a one-handed catch by a freshman on third down. They had a freshman kicker after a sack make this like long field goal. And then they had like a screen pass to a fullback. It was like, you guys are riding the lightning right now. <laughs> like, you are on the cutting edge of the sword. Can you not just ride it a little bit more? Because this is the least sustainable thing I've ever seen in my life, though, you're scoring. Yeah, and I, I, didn't, I, I didn't necessarily like the, the play call at the end there to get TJ Finley kind of moving to his right, like on his ankle. Mm-hmm. I, I just didn't necessarily think that was it. I would have liked to have seen them maybe test the Bama corners on the inside or something like that and see if they can find a soft spot in the zone as opposed to just limiting half the field and uh, hoping that he's able to, to, to make up a perfect throw, and that's what it would have taken in that situation. He ultimately wasn't able to do that. What a weird year for Auburn. I know we say that so much on this show, but goodness gracious. How are Auburn fans supposed to feel after that? Because on one hand, your team outperformed any expectation you could have had on, on Saturday. Mm-hmm. We were talking about a three-score underdog. I was saying Bama's going to roll in this game. Bama's going to find its groove. It's going to be ugly. They don't have anything. Auburn doesn't have anything left to play for. You've got a backup quarterback in there, TJ Finley. This is going to be real bad. And on that first series where Will Anderson gets to him on third down, you're just thinking, this is, this is going to be terrible. And Auburn fans are probably just bracing for the worst. And instead, you have this thrilling game that probably took years off your life. You still end up losing. You've lost four in a row to end the regular season. You're at six and six. You have no idea what the future holds for Mike Bobo. Is he going to run this <laughs> offense? I don't know. As of this recording, he still has a job. TBD on that. I tend to think that maybe they're going to make some offensive changes. Who knows if they're going to bring in a new offensive coordinator and decide, oh, Bo Nix, maybe the fourth offensive coordinator we bring in will work for you. I I, I don't know. I, I have no idea. You've got a head coach who is pretty unproven as a recruiter in this region of the country. He's still fighting off these Washington rumors. That looming state vaccination mandate is still hanging there. Mm-hmm. It's just weird. It's really weird and that's saying a lot for Hofford right I mean like this just doesn't feel like a a situation that anybody has a firm grasp on right now yeah I mean wow you're right it's like however weird Auburn was they got even weirder somehow and it's funny because yeah you already had the apology about Auburn because I think you had them five and seven or six and six and they're like how five and seven yeah yep. and they and the difference is LSU sucks like that's the difference and so like at the end of the day like the like you've made the apology halfway through the season and we're like yeah I was wrong about Auburn and then they went ahead and lost four straight and like you said you look at the season and like they have these moments they have the old miss game they have the LSU game and you're just like ha huh, they're putting something together here and I mean you know, their quarterback gets hurt. You know, they played really well. One thing I just want to say, just a small note. I know we've done a lot of, like, you know, random play-calling bits, but it's like, I hope the death grip that running out of a shotgun on third and short has, I, I want to throw that out Hate the it. window. I don't know. Bama did it on fourth down, got snuffed out, and then Bobo went ahead and did it again on third down. It's like, do you not trust your guys at all? What does moving away from, a, you start off at a yard, you move two yards back, I, that was the only moment. I mean, we talked about the two-point conversion, but it's like, I I understand why everybody gets angry at Bobo because he has these moments that it's like, dude, what are you thinking right now? Because Auburn goes under center. That's the other thing. Yep. That's always the excuse. <laughs> the default excuse in those third and short situations when these teams go out of shotgun is, well, they're more comfortable out of shotgun because mm-hmm. that's all they run. Auburn actually goes under center. TJ Finley is 6'7". <laughs> He's 6'7", man. Like, you saw the picture of him standing next to Bryce Young. He's like a foot taller than Bryce Young, all right? You're telling me that guy can't get a quarterback sneak? And I understand, like, oh, he's got his ankle. You're kind of worried about that. Inexplicable. 
inexplicable. You cannot have that in in, in those moments. It, it was a it was a weird day for Auburn. It's been a weird year for Auburn. <laughs> Who knows what the next month is gonna is is gonna entail on the planes on the on the Bama side. A few things. Seeing Saban afterwards that happy and relieved, <laughs> that was significant. And he's dancing in the postgame locker room. That video came out where he sees Miss Terry and they have this this adorable embrace. And like, kind of regardless of what you think of Saban, there's something about watching a 70-year-old man hug his wife that's just beautiful mm-hmm. and will always bring a smile to your face. He looked like someone who is really soaking this in and not necessarily anal about the things that he has been in years past. And I say that because of this. You can bet there were a lot of deja vu thoughts in his brain at Jordan-Hare late in that game of something weird's gonna happen. We're gonna find a way to lose. They're gonna put an extra second on the clock and Auburn's gonna kick a walk-off field goal. Something weird is going to happen. I guess the weird thing was the new overtime rules that everybody and their mother hated and just said this is the silliest way to decide a game. And I don't know, like, I don't necessarily think it's the worst thing in the world. Everybody on the losing side of that is always going to hate it, but Mm -hmm. I guess I'm in the minority for saying that. He told his team at halftime to just have fun and don't worry about the result. (laughs) Who is this guy? Like, what? He said in the postgame after, he's like, just just have fun, guys. Like, just just don't worry about the result. Like, you know, just just relax. You know, we're going to figure this thing out. It'll be all right. It was a reminder that nobody adjusts to their team better than him. Mm-hmm. And it's been a wild year for Alabama in that regard. Six of eight SEC games that they have played in, it has been a one-score game in the fourth quarter. It has not been dominance in the, in the least bit. But to have figured that out and that sometimes your team just needs to be able to relax, that's a smart move. That is coaching. And maybe you saw that down the stretch when Bryce Young was just kind of like, yeah, I'm just... Just gonna go out there and play. And you see the poise and you see those moments from him and his receivers being able to to finally get some separation and that team did figure some things out down the stretch. I don't know if there are any adjustments that Saban can make for this Georgia team. I'll say that. Um, And we'll get to a lot of SEC championship preview in the midweek pod because the offensive line is still a disaster. It it really is. The, The discipline issues continue to pile up. They had over 100 penalty yards like by early in the fourth quarter, which is just so uncharacteristic of a saving coach team. I don't think Bama can run the ball at all. I don't care if Brian Robinson's healthy or not. If they play like that against Georgia, they're going to be looking up at a 35 nothing deficit. Mm-hmm. That's And that's reality. And I think a lot of Bama fans have now, at this point of the season, at least kind of come to realize that this team has played down to its competition for a reason. And it's not that they're just not able to maximize their potential. It's that they just have weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And that's what teams with weaknesses do. Should we go to Georgia? Should we talk some clean, old-fashioned hate, Will? You want to do that? Real quick. Uh, one note on Saban. I, I think you're absolutely right. And that's a great point. And, and you know, we were looking for the sideline shot of Saban, you know, throwing his headset and being angry at his team. And it never came yesterday. And I, yeah. and I think that I, I think that you're absolutely right. Saban is a very perceptive dude. One thing, it's like, I you know, Growing up, you know, being a kid in Louisiana and everything, it's it's been wild to watch Saban, you know, grow up or not grow up, but like as an adult, seeing Saban and how perceptive he is and how outside of football he's a guy that it's really hard to hate. You know what I'm saying? He's a very, very down to earth type of guy. And you're absolutely right about this team that I think he understands where this team is at. He understands every team and the teams that he throws his headset at, the teams that he gets angry at, those are the teams with 
legit championship expectations, all these first-round picks and all that. You know, he knows this is a rebuilding year, and I think you're absolutely right. He's enjoying this team. He's proud of them for the way they've played. I mean, we've talked about this Alabama team and all, you know, these flaws they've had and, and all these games that are just ridiculous, and they still have one loss. So I think at the end of the day, it's like, this is one of Saban's best coaching jobs, honestly, because if he held this team to the standard of last year's team or some of the previous teams, it obviously would have been a disappointment, but credit to him for adjusting to this team and setting expectations appropriately and not making them play out of the, the shell of former teams. And maybe there's a little bit of that in the back of his mind knowing, hey, even if this team doesn't necessarily win a national championship or anything like that, even if they don't make it to the playoff, they're going to have the two best players in college football back on their team next year. Mm-hmm. Bryce Young, Will Anderson. That's, that's, not, that's not the worst thing in the world to, to, to be able to think about. You don't even have to worry about NFL draft decisions with them because they are, they are second-year players. So, yeah. Alabama has had just a, a roller coaster season. I tell you what, man, it's been entertaining. There's no doubt about that. And the team that they will see in the SEC championship next Saturday, Georgia. Clean old fashioned hate, Georgia Tech did not stand a chance in this football <laughs> game. I keep saying this, but it needs to be repeated. Take away the non offensive touchdowns. <laughs> do not hold that against Georgia's defense. We need to do that. Georgia allowed 69 points in 12 regular season games. That's it. <laughs> Even with the incorrect 6.9 points per game allowed number that everybody's going to keep throwing out this week, that is still the best since the Boz's defense at Oklahoma in 1986. Man, it's pretty good. (laughs) That was 35 years ago. I mean, think about that. Think about this era of offense and how hard that is to do. And there are people that continue to say, oh, they haven't faced an elite offense, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, Tennessee's going to be a borderline top 10 offense. And um, they scored 17 points. And that game was in Knoxville, and everything probably could have been working in their favor in that football game. Still didn't really matter. Seven of 12 teams were shut out by Georgia in the first half. You're more likely to get shut out than you are to score a single point against that Georgia team in the first half. Mm-hmm. Hard to win football games if you don't have a first half point. <laughs> Some would say I'm scoring saying. points, important. Hard to do that against Georgia. Very, very key to winning football games. Um, also, also, Georgia held its first 12, opponents, uh, t- first 12 opponents to 17 points or less. Again, Tennessee was the only team to hit that 17-point mark. Nobody had done that since 1979 Texas, back when a young Herschel Walker was a senior in high school. Again, first 12 opponents to 17 points or less. That is insane to think about. Dude, if you're hating Georgia at this point, I... I don't know what to tell you. I, I hate to say you hate college football. I hate to make any judgments about you, but like, dude, these teams that we're comparing them to are like when they invented weight training. Like, like it's not even, throw out the offenses. This is like when they didn't understand how your body works and like didn't understand, you know, what sports really were. Dudes were out there in like, like short shorts and like mesh shirts. And that's what we're competing with right now. The crop top. Oh yeah. The crop top lives. <laughs> Georgia is going to the playoff. The ticket is punched. In my opinion, there's, even if they lost 45 to nothing to Bama, which they're not going to do, they're in. And don't let anybody get caught up in that narrative. If Georgia falls behind two touchdowns in this game and Danny Cannell is tweeting about how Georgia doesn't belong in the playoff, ignore it, mute it, do whatever you have to do, because that's just simply not going to be true. Mm-hmm. But a few questions remain. For one, what is George Pickens going to provide for this team? Great to see him come back in this game. He gets a catch his first game back since the torn ACL that he suffered in the spring. 
I still think it can hurt to uh, that that it won't necessarily hurt to have someone out there who can stretch the field. But I do kind of question what their rapport is with Stetson Bennett. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't there in the first half of last year before JT Daniels came in, and part of that was because Pickens was banged up. So I don't necessarily know that they're all of a sudden going to form this all-world connection, at least not to the level that Bennett has with Brock Bowers. <laughs> who, oh my gosh, what a play that was! Seventy-eight yards mm-hmm. and just runs past the secondary as a tight end. I mean, the guy is incredible. He is one of the, my favorite players to watch in, in all of college football. Like already, I, I still am blown away and thank you to everybody who always tweets at me, uh, Brock, Brock Bowers, human or not human? <laughs> Leaning not human, right? Uh, once again, bro. Those DBs watching him just fly past them had to just be reevaluating their whole life. <laughs> like, where where did this kid come from? Like, how how in the world is that physically possible to do that at that size to be able to run that quickly? NFL scouts are going to be all over that guy because he is something else. Um, second question for Georgia: Can Georgia get over the hump against Bama and get what appears to be? a super favorable one to four matchup that is shaping up right now. Whether that's Cincinnati, Oklahoma State, or Notre Dame, there is a lot of value in that number one seed this year. And I usually don't think there is. I, I usually think that's overrated because I'm like, well, you know what, if, they're, if you're gonna win a national championship, just kind of get there. And if you're the best team in college football, it's gonna show. Mm-hmm. But I, I truly think that there is a real value in, in facing that four seed, whoever it may be. And I think that Georgia will be a significant favorite if they're able to get that one seed and if they're able to beat Bama to get there. The third question, it's gonna to continue to be about this offense. And I don't know that it necessarily should. The thing that we don't know with Stetson Bennett is what will it look like if and when he has to string together fourth quarter scoring drives? Mm-hmm. Haven't seen that yet. And, and I'm not one of these people saying like, oh, you've already seen how this is going to go. We saw how it went against Bama last year. He couldn't stretch the field. I, I've said it before. I'll say it again. He is stretching the field in Tom Munkin's offense. He's doing what it needs to, to do in order to be able to, to execute at a high level. But I, I just we don't have an answer to that question yet. The good news for Georgia, if we're being honest, I thought Ohio State offered the best potential mismatch for Georgia mm-hmm. with what they had with those receivers. We talked about it a week ago, right? Yeah. They, they clobbered Michigan State. And we're saying, let's see what these receivers can do against the likes of Daly, uh, against the likes of Darian Kendrick and Kaylee Ringo, and can they maybe test them in ways that we haven't quite seen yet? Michigan, if that matchup were to happen, would be a far better matchup, in my opinion, for Georgia with how well Georgia is able to, to last in the trenches, of course. And that's where Michigan just bludgeoned Ohio State. And it was ugly in that regard. We'll wait and see if we get that matchup. I think Georgia's defensive line will feast against the Bama offensive line. And, and they'll put a ton of pressure on Bryce Young. But again, we'll discuss that on the midweek pod. Will, did you have any other takeaways about, about Georgia? No. Yeah, I'm just like I said, I'm fired up for them. Uh, playoff is obviously going to be you know, the second phase of their season. And yeah, I'm excited to see. I think everything you said about Stetson is fair. I think that, you know, you can credit the defense while at, at the same time saying it's a double-edged sword that they've never had to come back. They've never really had to win these type of shootout games. So I'm really fired up for their playoffs here because they're only a couple of games away. And those those games will really tell the story of this team's legacy, you know? 
Yeah, and I, I hope they're they're able to be healthy for this run as well with some of the guys that they had banged up and, and Nolan Smith, hopefully able to get him back. Christopher Smith, I, be, I believe as well, has been kind of banged up down the stretch. But I don't know that it matters uh, all that much. I still think that Georgia is is having that year, is having the 2020 Bama, 2019 LSU, just feels like Georgia's year. The Egg Bowl. Let's go back in time a little bit. A little bit more. Thursday. Thursday night was a blowout, and we didn't get a vintage Bananas Egg Bowl. Mm -hmm. It was still entertaining, still very entertaining. What we instead got was another reminder that Lane Kiffin is pretty good at this coaching thing, Mm -hmm. case people have been sleeping on that. Win number 10, best regular season win total in program history for Ole Miss. Kiffin did that in year two with mostly recruiting classes that had sanctions from the previous regime. I guess previous, previous regime. It's not fair to put that on Matt Luke. That's more of a Hugh Freeze type of thing. Yeah. Good for Hugh Freeze, by the way. Four million bucks from Liberty. Unreal. What a come up, man. This guy, man. Incredible. What a king, that Hugh Freeze. You got to hand it to him. Welcome to 2021, where the coach at Liberty is getting $4 million annually. Goodness gracious. Ole Miss going to a New Year's Six Bowl. It will depend on which New Year's Six Bowl, uh, based on the Alabama SEC Championship result. It's, I think it's Sugar Bowl if Bama wins, and then Fiesta Bowl if Bama loses, because Bama's going to probably be ranked ahead of Ole Miss. They would both have two losses. Bama, of course, would have the head-to-head advantage, so Bama would get slotted for the Sugar Bowl if it were to lose to Georgia. We'll kind of wait and see on that. Either way, what a year for Ole Miss, and not just offensively, because I know that's what we talk about a lot, but think about how much, Will, you and I were both like, Will Rogers, man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Will Rogers has figured it out. The last month that he has had has been special. There were not five players in all of college football playing the position better than him. Maybe not two or three players playing the position better than he was. Mm-hmm. We threw out the Gardner Minshew stat. I called for a Mississippi State win because of how well Rodgers had been playing and because it was at home against Ole Miss and who theoretically had a banged up starting quarterback. It would have helped Will Rogers just a little bit if one of his receivers could have caught any of those three touchdown passes in the red zone that was bad yeah i mean at the end of the day you know what i'm saying it's like it's like being a great pitcher it's like you can be the best quarterback in the world but like if someone's not physically able to catch the football when it hits them in the hands you could literally not complete a pass and we saw that in the egg bowl it was impossible to drop as many just right in the bread basket type plays i mean balls going off the helmet just felt bad for Will Rogers going through that. And it all happened because Ole Miss faked an injury. I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I get that it totally killed Mississippi State's momentum. It absolutely did, watching that play out. We see the before and after, and it felt like a big play. It really did. And Ole Miss has been accused of doing this all year, and it's ironic considering the hurry-up style that they play and how teams could probably be doing it a lot more against them. You won't find a bigger, we need to stop the faking injuries advocate than me, as I've said many times. Will we talk about this very frequently? Oh, yes. I've got the plan. <laughs> the second the second Steve Shaw wants to, to listen to me and my, my approach, it's all out there. I'll, I'll send it. I'll send it to him just like he, he was pleading for. Hey, if you got a better idea, just, just let us know. <laughs> Buddy, do I, you. I have, better than your plan, which is nothing, Mm -hmm. apparently. It's accountability for the coaches. Uh, Good luck with that, Steve Shaw. Uh, Wish you the best, really do. Um, 
But Mississippi State fans, like, be honest with yourself here. Y'all have gotten screwed in games before, like what happened at Memphis, and maybe even the DPI that happened in the Arkansas game, right? Two instances in where you could say, we easily could have won those games if not for officiating mistakes. Mm -hmm. That play didn't make or break that game. Ole Miss ran away with it, and Corral did not look hobbled at all. That defense, that Ole Miss defense, was once again excellent, and that's why this team has gotten to a 10-win regular season. It's a different group than last year. Mm -hmm. If it's the same Ole Miss defense as last year, yeah, maybe that game goes down to the wire. It's a little bit closer. Mississippi State fans are frustrated that it ends up that way. But in my opinion, that Ole Miss defense kind of took over. The overall production with Corral really hasn't changed a whole lot year to year, right? It's not like all of a sudden they have scored 10 more points per game like what Mississippi State is doing. With the exception of the turnovers, that, that really hasn't changed a whole lot. Corral has cut down on the turnovers big time, but the reason this team has been able to, to get to these new heights already is because of the defense. It flirted with mediocrity, just as we talked about so many times. And hey, Will, we finally have the answer. The final answer, <laughs> I think at least, to our favorite question. Yes, sir. Who is the number two team in the SEC West? That was Ole Miss. Gotta be. All right? Mm-hmm. Can't be Auburn. <laughs> um, I'd still be really encouraged if I were a Mississippi State fan. Offense took that next step. Third time in Leach's career as a head coach that he improved the Power 5 offense by at least a touchdown in year two. You'll take that. Will Rogers is a stud. He's going to be back. He's going to be one of the best quarterbacks in all of college football coming back next year. I think Zach Arnett is still really good. We respect the 3-3-5 on this podcast. That's what we do. 3-3-5 stands. Barring a situation in which... That's that's what we are. Barring a situation in which he goes somewhere else, which he already kind of dodged the bullet with the LSU thing last year. I don't know. Unless he wants <laughs> to go the group of five route and become a head coach there, which I never say never, but maybe you can keep him around. Maybe he gets another raise because the run defense was really good in my opinion. And if I'm a Mississippi State fan, I'm kind of like, hey, you know what? We could still end up with an eight-win season. Had some of these nice wins and not feeling too particularly bad. And Ole Miss, meanwhile, going on to a New Year's Six Bowl Win number 11 potentially on the table. Will, any other Egg Bowl thoughts? No, that was just a fun game. Like I said, you know, if you're blaming the Ole Miss injuries, it's like, blame your wide receivers. I'm not even being mean. It's just a fact. It's like, hey, man, like, yeah. <laughs> they, it, football is such a momentum game. And the way that that broke down was just like, man, you guys just don't want to be here, which is fine. But it's like, Will Rogers still had a great game. I don't think that he was, it was anything on him. That He has been running that offense so well, man. But yeah, like you said, Ole Miss is just a little bit better. Matt Corral just a little bit better on that day. And yeah, we're, you know, really psyched about Ole Miss and where they're going in the future, man. Bright future for both of these programs. And Ole Miss, I know that Ole Miss fans for the next week, two weeks, Gonna be sweating out this coaching search and checking their phones all the time, making sure that Lane's not leaving or something like that. I don't know if Lane's leaving, mm -hmm. but man, he does not come off like a coach who's on his way out. Oh yeah. He just doesn't. You see the way that he reacts on social media. By the way, thank you Lane for the retweet. Um, he took my, my clip that I got of him doing the Vince Carter and he tweeted it at Vince Carter. <laughs> Vince Carter, I don't think saw it, but shoot your shot Lane, do what you gotta do. I don't think that Lane comes off as somebody who is eager to leave. And as I said before with the Miami stuff. Insane. Why do we think that we've seen Lane's ceiling when he just did this in year two? Yeah. That's that's the bizarre thing. Like, do you really think Lane having the year that he had just all of a sudden is going to be like, 
yeah, you know what? I've realized winning in the SEC West is harder than I thought. It's like, dude, just went 10 and two. Who in their right mind would actually think that, oh, now I'm gonna go to Miami. Now this is the opportunity that makes sense for me. I still think that Lane is most likely to stay. That's what it feels like at this point. Mm-hmm. If I'm Florida, you know, LSU, I guess we don't need to get into that. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about coaching stuff midweek. Mm-hmm. We'll, get, we'll get to that later. Ed O'Dron. Wait, real quick on Lane also. Uh, Dylan Gabriel, transfer portal. So Lane, you could go from a place where, uh, you know, everyone's worried about Lane leaving. If Lane stays, they could add a really good quarterback in Dylan Gabriel from UCF, who a lot of people are saying he might go rejoin uh, Levy, who was obviously his OC at UCF. We had that amazing season. So Ole Miss fans, like, like you said, if you can make it through two weeks, man, that third week is going to be pretty nice, man. This is going to be a great offseason for y'all. I, I had that in the notes. We were going to get to that. We were going to get to that with a little bit of Tennessee talk. Oh, okay. And, um, how it relates to potentially Hendon Hooker, but I'm glad that you brought that up because you are exactly right. And that is one other thing. And my guy Brad Crawford brought this up too. Of what we're going to see, in addition to the coaching carousel, maybe after the coaching carousel, that aftershock is going to be the quarterbacks moving from place to place, mm-hmm. and some big name signal callers, Dylan Gabriel being one of them, is going to be on the move. Well, I'll, I'll get to, uh, I got a couple more thoughts that I want to get to, um, but we'll, we'll tie it into some Tennessee things as well. But that's a, that is a, a great point and potentially another reason to feel optimistic if you are an Ole Miss fan. Mm-hmm. All right, well, Ed Ogeron, he walks off a winner. Yeah. He's going to Destin with his girlfriend. He's, he's going to have a double <laughs> cheeseburger. He's got 17 million bucks. What a life. He is going to be living his best life for, I don't know, the next year or so. We're going to need like a monthly check-in from Ed Ogeron. Maybe it's not running shirtless anymore. That seems a little bit uh, off-brand for this new phase in his life. That's a little bit too hardworking. Yeah. Maybe just him hammered somewhere on a beach, cell phone videos. Just, I, I'm not going to do the Coach O voice. I'm not going to do it. But, like, just, hey, everybody, life's good. Maybe he just pulls out a, a big stack of, stack of 20s and just starts wiping his face, <laughs> the sweat off of his face. It's like you could tell he's in some sort of beach cabana. Oh yeah. The way that it's shaded. His his skin is tanner than ever. That's one thing that we're really gonna notice. You think he's tan now? <laughs> Buddy, you have not seen vacationed Coach O tan. He is going to be a crispy <laughs> crispy, crispy deep fried Coach O. <laughs> I'm just gonna say it. Uh screw it. Just hire just hire him back, LSU. Just do it. Yeah, we. Uh, I was like joking like half seriously with you before we started the podcast. Like, do we do we make a mistake here? It's like I don't think so, man. He was he was cooked at LSU. Just kidding, he's gonna be cooked on the beach. Uh, he, I, you know, he meant so much to Louisiana. It was so great to watch him walk off like that. He deserved to win. Uh, nothing makes me happier than like A and M fans complaining about officiating after that game, especially after 2018. Again, congratulations, you guys beat Alabama, and here you are. Mad at LSU, their six win season. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, that, that game was super fun. Uh, it was. I thought he was going to go out sad, man. I really did, especially the way these last two games have gone, two SEC games where it's yeah. like your defense is playing their butts off, and you can make an argument they have behind Georgia maybe the best defense in the SEC since you know the defense have shifted Alabama. But the offense just runs out of gas, and I thought it was going to happen again. You know when they couldn't get it going and they get the ball back on that punt, and they just slowly go down the field. Max Johnson, yep. Max Johnson is like the definition of cojones man because he can be terrible for three and a half quarters of football and he just puts it together at the end that was such a great walk off and thankfully scott woodward is, didn't fall to some of the same same trips as uh 
The previous administration where Coach O, or, uh, Les Miles has already been fired, he walked off against a and but then got rehired, and we had to do the whole thing again. So I think it was nice, succinct. The thing that fascinates me about Coach O, too, is we talked about it. He has in that buyout, like, an agreement to go speak on behalf of LSU. And there were, like, reports, like, before that game, he was still out there recruiting and stuff. So I'm wondering, there's a, a vacation Coach O element, but I want to see, like, if they're, if him and Coach O, if Coach o and LSU are still going to be, like, friends with benefits, or if they're going to be totally, like, block each other and move on, you know? I think there will always be that that respect factor, and um, seeing seeing our guy Gene Chizik honored with the 2010 national championship team mm-hmm. at Auburn, and um, seeing the way that he has been embraced by that community. Time heals wounds, maybe not all wounds, <laughs> but it heals wounds. And once the dust settles, I think that relationship will be there, and I think we'll see him kind of advocate for. I mean, even Urban Meyer wears Florida stuff and goes to Florida games. Yeah. Like that's that's still a thing that happens despite the the awkward exit there and it, it it'll take a little bit of time, but he's always going to have a, a special place in LSU lore and regardless of what you think he was as a as a head coach, as an elite head coach, he brought that that program, that state some some truly special moments that nobody is ever going to forget. And it was fitting watching his team go out that way and I, I don't know why I didn't see it coming a mile away that's on me I don't know why I went back on my preseason prediction that LSU was going to win this football game but uh, I, I thought seeing the way that that Jordan Rogers kind of broke it down and said going into that last drive is like this is, this is going to be like a made for, for Hollywood script mm-hmm. and then Tom Hart had to finish his sentence and basically say basically oh meaning like LSU is going to march down the field and score a touchdown because it wasn't like they were slinging it. Oh, yeah. It wasn't like that was a, a dominant game by any stretch of the imagination. And it took a miraculous throw from Max Johnson, who had to just be feeling it with the beating that he took. Only scholarship quarterback available for that team. <laughs> and I thought Michael Clemens had his number, man. Yeah. Like, that dude had four sacks. It felt like every single time Max Johnson turned around, he had just Michael Clemens on top of him. And I don't know how they were able to put anything together on that last drive the amount of faith that LSU fans, yourself included, probably had in Jake Peets to dial one up. <laughs> Listen, man, kids at home, high. you know, you watch Bill O'Brien, Mike Bobo, and Jake Peets in these classic games. Follow your dreams, kids, because a lot of you listening to this podcast might be able to do their job just as well. I have no idea what LSU's future holds. <laughs> I don't. As we record this on Sunday morning, November 28th, the sound crew at Oklahoma State seems to think that Lincoln Riley is going to be calling Baton Rouge real soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lincoln Riley tried to shoot that down in every way, shape, and form, said, I'm not going to be LSU's next head coach. TBD on that. But while it seems like everyone and their mother is staying at their current school with a massive extension, I do think it is a selling point to Ed O'Geron's successor that you don't necessarily have to overhaul the culture. Yeah. And at times we thought you would at LSU. And this last month kind of debunks that a little bit. And seeing the way that they, those players have bought in, there's no guarantee that they're going to buy in immediately with the next head coach there. But I think that that has to matter somewhat, right? Like you're not just going into a situation that's a total dumpster fire where if you were to, and I realize this job isn't coming open right now, but if you were to be the next head coach at Texas tomorrow, you would look at that program and say, I have to overhaul this culture. Yeah. This is a problem right now. And I know there have been points this year in which we've thought that we're, we, we thought that was the case at LSU. 
I don't really think that is as much anymore. We know the cupboard is not going to be bare in terms of talent. On the A&M side, it's not as weird as Florida's 8-4 and four season last year, but it's up there. Yep. Weird 8-4 and four year. This team should have been better than 4-4 four and four in SEC play. It really should have. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's back in that Kevin Sumlin era spot is something. And we're seeing all the side-by-sides. And Jimbo, this is what you signed up for. You're not going to exceed that 8-9 win ceiling multiple times. This is what people are going to ask about you because we all know that Kevin Sumlin had that one season with Manziel and then everything else kind of got back to the same exact level. And maybe 2020 is going to be that year for Jimbo. We don't know just yet. But the stat about you know 34 and 14, Jimbo is in his first four years. Someone 36 and 16 first four years. Jimbo got the mega extension, way richer than than what someone got at, at the end of that year two. Um, it, it really is strange to look at this team now because they're going to lose a lot of that defense. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot. And Antonio Johnson, Edron Cooper, they're, they're going to come back and be two of the better players in this conference, I think. But the defensive line is, I mean, they're, they're probably all gone. I, I would assume that they all are. The Michael Clemens, that, that, that game was going all over his NFL draft film. Oh, yeah. That's going to be... Uh, that's going to be a guy that I think continues to rise up some draft boards here once people are able to focus in on him and not maybe look so much at at PV and Leal because they were the headliners coming into this year. Tyree Johnson, another guy going to be playing on Sundays. They're going to have like four defensive defensive linemen drafted. I mean, which is just crazy to think about the production there. And, you know, they're also going to have O'Neal and and Richardson, probably a few other guys that I'm forgetting who are going to get drafted probably. This Jimbo thing is just a roller coaster, man. I, I don't think he's going anywhere. But what if he does this for another two years? And then he's been in College Station for six years. Does he look up and say, hey, maybe we are destined to be in this spot forever, just like someone was. I'm not saying Jimbo was in any hurry to leave. And again, I want it on record. I think he's staying. He's got ranches there. Ranches. Numerous. All right. He's not in any hurry. But... Man, I, I think that I, I think that we're going to start to wonder about that a little bit in the offseason, even though I'd argue that would obviously be more of an indictment on Jimbo than anything anything that A&M necessarily provided, because Lord knows resources aren't lacking. It's not like they're stuck with some archaic approach. Well, I think they're stuck with an archaic offense, but that's, <laughs> that's Jimbo's fault. <laughs> well, again, that comes back to Jimbo then. So Jimbo is not going to get the offseason momentum that he was hoping for that I thought could have been there. I thought a double-digit win season was on the table for this team, and that's ultimately not going to be the case. They're not going to play for a New Year's Six Bowl. Tough way to end the regular season and go into this recruiting cycle. You know Jimbo wanted that one badly and not able to get it. You know, real quick, you know, right. you know what's funny about that, man? This whole offseason, I, I had said about them, I was like, hey, you're stealing a second in the SEC West because you're never going to be able to beat Bama. It is bonkers beyond belief that they beat Bama and finish, what, fifth in the SEC West? Yeah, four and four. So, I mean, think about that, man. Uh, <laughs> gosh, that just that, that's not supposed to happen. Just not, you know. Which I mean, like, if you're an A&M fan, you got to take last year over this year, even with that bad loss to Bama, right? Because it's like it's almost like you would rather be second place than bad, or the the win. Oh, you take last year. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, you're good. I feel like you would have to take that, even with that bad loss to Bama. Where you feel your ceiling right there. Then okay, we beat Bama and we lost to Mike Leach. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
I don't know. I have no idea. Strange, strange team to try and figure out. We felt like we knew what the, the strengths were, and I thought they were, they were pretty obvious, but just in terms of the week-to-week -week output, what you were gonna see for AM, a bit all over the place, and yeah, that has to come back to the guy making more than $9 million a year. I'm sorry, Sorry, one more thing. I've literally said this for eight weeks at this point, and I just realized, wow, this time has actually come. This is uh, it's tough to watch Coach Ogo, man. I know we talked about this a little bit, but it was it was really cool seeing him. You know, it was it was it was it, it's cool seeing someone that looks like my uncle, Coach LSU, man. I it really it really was, and I like I said, I just realized every time I was starting to think about Coach Ogo, I'd say we got to do this at the end of the year, we got to do this at the end of the year, and I can't believe the year's here, man, and and. It's, it's tough. He imbibed Louisiana so much, and I just want to say, you know, it was great to root for him. This was the most fun, I mean, tenure of LSU football. You never knew what you were going to get every single year, and, you know, the people that were hating on him and the people that were calling for his job, um, I, I feel like we're so entitled, and, you know, this was such a fun ride, and I just I just want to say, like I said, man, as an LSU fan, there's been almost, other than being a Bama fan, obviously, there, there's nothing more fun to be, because every Saturday, you might get a walk-off like we got last week, you might lose to Troy, you really never knew, but that was a coach experience, and I don't think there's ever going to be another co uh, coach that loves his, his organization and loves his, you know, culture. I remember, you know, the project I did with him going down to LaRose and interviewing him, and it's, you know, it's emotional, man, watching a guy like that that's from the bayou, one of us, watching him come up, reach the very top, and then obviously go out the way he did, but I think it's going to be a good um, I think it's gonna be a good relationship, like you said, and hopefully the next coach will, will pick up from where he left off. A new chapter will begin, yeah. and dare I say, it'll feel a lot different than the one that, that just ended in Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. Arkansas. Yeah. Friday game ends the streak against Mizzou. Sam Pittman is 8-4. He ended the Mizzou losing streak, which dated back to 2015. He ended the LSU losing streak. Sorry, I didn't wake up and choose Bible State. <laughs> that's fine, yeah. That streak dates back to 2015. He ended the A&M streak, of course, which dated back to 2011. Some great photos of Pittman with the rivalry trophies in the locker room afterwards. Crazy that no player on the Arkansas roster had ever won a rivalry trophy before this year. Mm -hmm. And here they are with three of them at the end of the regular season. This one came a bit easier than the previous two. Um, once Arkansas realized that Mizzou couldn't throw the ball and the entire team was Tyler Beatty, wasn't a whole lot that really worked for the visiting team. How about Traylon Burks? I came away from this game with just even more respect for him, which I did not know was possible because he was clearly at less than 100% for the second consecutive week. You know that that guy has to have people in his ear telling him that he's going to be a first-round pick. Mm -hmm. Take it easy, man. Maybe you sit out these last couple games. It's not really going to make or break the, the rest of the season for you guys. Kind of haze in the barn, not getting try and get to a New Year's Six Bowl or anything like that. Mizzou did two really, really dumb things on him that even Traylon Burks said, I don't know, 65%, you can't do this uh, against him in these spots. Mm -hmm. One was uh, they had a defensive back look in the backfield when Burks was lined up in the slot and he was going over the top, and that's all he needed. And he ends up um, tripping over, over the turf and not scoring a touchdown on that play, but still it's a long completion. It was kind of exact, exactly what Arkansas needed. You also, you know, you probably shouldn't, it's just based on experience, based on the way that he's played throughout his career, you probably shouldn't have press coverage on him without any over-the-top help. Another bad idea, just just don't do it. Future off or future NFL defensive coordinators, just, just maybe take a pass on, on trying to, to do that against Burks because that that play worked to perfection, and it was obvious that it was it was happening. And I hate to give Rick Neuheisel 
any credit here, but he did call that one. Gosh, I can't stand Rick Neuheisel. Really? I can't stand him. I, I, I was so close to putting that game on mute. Every single time he, he interrupts Noah Eagle and just talks right over him. Everybody listening to that broadcast knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's too many guys in the booth. I praise Tom, Cole, and Jordan because they have a unique dynamic where they have three guys who have open mics, but Cole's down on the field and they never talk over each other. Meanwhile, every two seconds, I've got to listen, listen to Rick Neuheisel talk over Noah Eagle who's trying to just finish the play. And Rick Neuheisel doesn't even give a crap. And he just constantly is just going to talk whenever he wants to talk. And I cannot stand it. Let I me mean, never listen to another CBS game with Rick Neuheisel on the call. I can't do it. I just can't do it. I'm just going to put it on mute next time. That's my TED Talk. Sorry. Had to get that off my chest. Dude, CBS is fun. Anyway. Back, man. They, get, they have the best product. And they just refuse to give us good, good announcers. Noah Eagle's great, too. He's like 23. Yeah. I, I, love, I love him. He's the exception. He's right. Eagle. Yeah, son of Iron Eagle, and he's like, he's gonna be awesome in this business. And watch, like, you're gonna be listening to Noah Eagle for the next 40 years, calling big time, you know, basketball, football games, whatever the case may be. But anyways, that was just that was really rough to listen to on a Friday afternoon when I was already pretty tired. Um, anyways, Traylon Burks, probably off to the NFL. I wanted to, as the kids say, give him his flowers mm -hmm. because that guy could have left when the new staff came in. One year, the Chad Morris offense, we said it before, he didn't have a touchdown, and he's the in-state kid. He could have had a ton of interest if he decided, I'm gonna hit the transfer portal, I'm gonna get all these people interested in me. Instead, he stays, and he does everything that Kendall Bryles asked him to do in that offense. He plays hurt all the time, and all that guy does is catch passes. He's incredible, and he's not quite gonna be remembered in the same breath as like, a Darren McFadden in terms of an all-time great because Darren McFadden kind of transcends just Arkansas. He's, he's everything. He's such a big part of college football in the 21st century, in my opinion. But one of the great Arkansas players of the 21st century, without a doubt, and one of the reasons why they were able to have this turnaround was Sam Pittman. Like why, why all of a sudden can you flip the switch and be as bad as they were two years ago to all of a sudden being in this spot where they were only out of one football game, mm -hmm. the Georgia game, that was it. Every other game they were in and they were close. And like they, they kind of, you can kind of look back on their season and be like, yeah, hey, it could have been like nine and three, 10 and two. And it wouldn't have been that crazy yeah. with some of the way that these endings broke for him. So I, I just, I think he's just an awesome player and I can't wait to watch him at the next level, assuming that he is indeed off to the next level. We'll kind of wait and see. It kind of felt like his last home game in front of the Arkansas faithful. Um, Tyler Beatty, one last thing. We've said a lot on Tyler Beatty this year. 41 carries in this game. <laughs> oh, they're trying to kill him. Insane. Right. He's getting the ball when there's like three minutes left. And I think they were, I didn't see the post-game comments if they're trying to get him like rushing record or something like that. And it probably helps that they're going to have several weeks for him to take off. And it's not like they have another game after this. Yeah. But they just kept feeding him the rock. And you could tell by the end of it, he's pretty tired. But given everything that he has, I love that. He averaged 37 touches per game in his last three games. That's, that's a ton of work, especially for a guy that size. He had more regular season scrimmage touches than 2015 Derrick Henry. If we're just looking at those 12 games, think about that and how much we talked about that volume and the size of Derrick Henry compared Jeez, to Tyler Beatty. man. They are getting Not that money back on that scholarship. <laughs> they are riding that one to the wheels fall. Holy cow. I mean, he, he was, he's everything. And 
He ends this, the regular season with five 200-yard games, including this one. But you could tell. He's just gas. He's a first-team All-SEC guy, in my opinion, no doubt about it. Would think that he is off to the NFL, but we'll wait and see. Eli Drinkwitz needs to find his his answer at quarterback because Connor Bazelak, we love that he spells his name correctly, but he's not mobile. He can't stretch the field consistently. Mizzou fans are ready to be done with it. They need to see somebody new in that spot. Would be surprised if Mizzou ran it back with him as the starter, whether that's the transfer portal, whether they go to uh, Cook, whether they go to Macon. I just don't necessarily think that that is the answer. Um, but any, any, more, any more thoughts on Arkansas or Mizzou, Will? Um, no, yeah, I mean, we talked about it at the, basically at the Georgia game where we were like, hey, they've already done enough this season where this is an impressive season. I think um, they avoided, as we feared for them, the wheels kind of coming off like they did last year. I think that they're, you know, we talked about it in the pre, or the last week's show. Um, we were really hoping for them to kind of ride off into the sunset after this game and really, like, put this season together for Sam Pittman. Um, I think, I don't think he wins it necessarily, but I think he deserves at least the conversation for SEC Coach of the Year, exactly as you talked about. Um, yeah. Would you still have Beatty as your first team All-SEC running back? Yeah, mm -hmm. you have to. I, I, think, I think you absolutely have to at this point, and I, I, I just think the volume is incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, what he did in the passing game, too, like, you just... It's still so efficient at the same time. I mean, average over six yards a carry this year with that much work. That is incredible. I, I, yeah, he is my first team All-SEC guy. Haven't um, gone too in-depth in terms of how I'm going to fill out the ballot just yet, but that is, that, that's my first team All-SEC running back. He absolutely deserved that. There's no doubt in my mind. And SEC Coach of the Year is going to be interesting. I think Kirby wins it. Yeah. Usually when we see an SEC coach who is on the path to a national championship, they win this award. That is oftentimes... Uh, Nationally speaking, the coach who rises above expectations the most. Mm -hmm. In the SEC, it's a little bit different. Um, I think Lane and Pittman would be my my two others. Mark Stoops is probably going to be in that conversation, but a little bit on the ex a little bit on the outside. That that's probably the three. The way that I would break it down, I think Kirby is going to win it though. He would probably still get my vote if I had one, which I don't. <laughs> All right, let's get to the Sickos Bowl. Yeah. It was incredible. It was a beautiful disaster. Florida <laughs> State against Florida. It had everything you could possibly hope for in a battle of five win teams. We had a pregame scuffle. Mm -hmm. We had horrendous officiating. Oh, yeah. We had guys punching dudes in helmets. We had, I think, five or six different guys playing quarterback at one point in this game. We had half a... Like, I think we had, how many interceptions did we end up? I don't know, but we had all the interceptions. We we had, I think, several on both sides. Yeah. I mean, Numerous, like a baby. In the first half. And, and bad interceptions too, not just, oh, you know, like DB made a really nice play. No, 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 no. like quarterback just <laughs> straight up blew it. It was awful. We had a kicker whiff on an onside kick attempt to try and get the ball back for a last ditch effort to win the game. It was glorious. And let's not forget, that, a player that is, trying to run for a touchdown without a helmet on. <laughs> Salute to you, Damian Pierce, for providing one of the best pictures of the entire college football season. I, I didn't see who exactly had that picture, if it was uh, Gainesville Sun or, or, or who it was. But if you haven't seen it, go try and find it on Twitter. It, it's somewhere. And 
Damian Pierce gets flagged for that, which is just total crap. Saw that flagged twice, actually. Mm -hmm. Saw that flagged in the Iron Bowl as well, where, yes, of course, this is just like people making up rules who have never played football before. Yep. Of course, when you get your helmet ripped off, you need to st you, you you can no longer engage. You have to just stop playing. Mm -hmm. Like, dude, you're gonna get killed if you do that. What do you mean? You're sitting duck out there. If you stop all of a sudden and everybody else is still playing football around you, that doesn't work. That rule needs to be changed. That's so unbelievably dumb. I hated seeing that call back. That was just ugh, silly. Damian Pierce needs every single carry that he actually gets to count. He got double-digit carries in this one. Though. That's what I was Good about to him. say. It's like, like you could tell how starving this man was. His helmet popped off and he's like, no, I got the ball. I'm not putting it down. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Greg Knox, for making sure that Damian Pierce got that work. Uh, it was funny because this game was on at the same time as Ohio State-Michigan, mm -hmm. and they're playing in this top five showdown with so much pressure, and it's basically like inside a snow globe. Yeah. And then you flip back to this one, <laughs> and it's sunny Florida, and you just see total chaos to the point where if you had asked me what the score was at any point in this game, I would not have known without looking. Oh, yeah. It was kind of an afterthought. <laughs> it really was. I say that more as a neutral observer. I'm sure Florida fans actually like probably knew. But if you watch this game without a rooting interest, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Where I'm like, oh, Florida's up 17 to seven, I guess. I've been so occupied by other things that have been going on in this game that I, whatever, the score kind of is what it is. Like, that can be off at its own, own little thing. But Greg Knox, interim juice, beat Lamar Jackson a few years ago. Yep. Beats Florida State this year. I don't know. Maybe just hire the guy to be a head coach or something. Yeah, uh, I mean, somewhere somebody do it. To be fair, it seems like Norvell didn't really know the score either because his last like quarter was just so like, what are, you're running oh the ball and punting. You're down like three scores, man. What are you doing? Punting down ten with five minutes left. What do you think this is? Right. Where do you have to be, buddy? You're not going to a bowl game. Like, what? you might as well just fourth and you know six. Go. Who cares? You're losing. Like. I was blown away by that. I, I think there are there are certain moments in which we get it stands out more because now we're seeing more coaches go for it on fourth down. That that is a, a trend that I I am mostly for in college football. Shout out to our guy Kevin Kelly. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I texted you. I texted you during this game. I'm like, Kevin Kelly probably watched Mike Norvell do that and just projectile vomit. <laughs> 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 I worked so hard so to build bad. this, and what'd you do? You lit it on fire, Mike. So, so bad. Um, one thing I wanted to say on a serious note, because I know we had some fun watching this one. It was awesome to see Kamari Gamble get into the end zone on that first drive, the Florida tight end. His mom had been in the hospital for two months with COVID. That family has been through a ton. She was there on Saturday, first game that she's been at all year. I loved watching that. Really, really cool moment in a season that has had a lot of downs for Florida. That was, I'm sure, very, very special to that player, that family, and all those who have watched him kind of go through this. So I wanted to give that a quick shout out. And that, that to me, though, was like, if you're looking for that, that entertainment, right? If you're looking for that, that noon entertainment, that had everything you could possibly want, where there's that touching moment, that was almost like a good rom-com, right? Like there's that little touching moment where you're like, I'm not fighting back tears, but this is this is a little, this gets me in my feelings a little bit. Mm -hmm. You have laugh out loud moments. You don't take it too seriously. It was way longer than a typical rom-com. I mean, they were trying to make that game go four hours. Yeah. It was unbelievable. 
but just kind of exactly what you were hoping for. And it gave us that. So thank you, Florida, Florida State. Round of applause. Haven't had many, to, many things to cheer about for you this season. That day was, that was perfect. Thank you. And hey, yeah, if you're a Florida fan, you get to go bowling, you get your extra practices, man. I, yeah. yeah, this is one of those games that literally I hoped it would be exactly the way it ended up being. That was a per exactly what you said. And you know, I'm such an elitist about stuff like this, and I think you're getting there. I see it. But it's like I'm watching that, that Michigan game or the Ohio State game. I'm watching this game. I'm like, you know, I'd really, I'd still rather be at this Florida game, man. I'll be honest. Watching those guys sit there in the, the Harry Potter coats, and I was like, that field is gray. That looks so terrible. <laughs> we had the debate on Twitter, and I know our guy Barrett Salee was getting into it a little bit, of what is football weather. I don't know. Everybody's debating, it was football weather, what was happening in Ann Arbor, or is, what, is football weather perfect, Florida weather like we were seeing in the Florida State Florida game? I don't know, man, kind of like both. Yeah. It just kind of depends on your mood. I did not, that's, that's not the type of game that, and I know that the atmosphere is probably second to none, um, but if you kind of take, like strip down the result, the idea of being in 30 degree weather at a football game. At 11 a.m., mind that. you, that's my real quote here. <laughs> Oh gosh, uh, to me, no thank you. I, I have a childhood memory of being at a Bears game when I was seven years old and putting on, I think, three different pairs of socks to watch the Bears face, like, I don't know, it was like Neil O'Donnell and the Jets. Oh boy. And it was one of the coldest memories of my lifetime. And we're just sitting, I'm just sitting there like, this isn't fun. Right. <laughs> just waiting to go home. Because you're not even really processing like what's going on. And I realize it's a little bit different with Ohio State and Michigan and top five showdown, all those different things. I'm sure Michigan fans would disagree with that take, but we had great weather debates on Twitter. Electric. SEC Connor, everyone. Jimmy Buffett Connor, out in full force. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Kentucky and Louisville, Governor's Cup. Mark Stoops owns, he owns Louisville. He really does. Third consecutive blowout win against Cardinals. He won the last three games against Louisville by an average of 36 points. Pretty Jeez. good. Will Levis was on one. He was awesome. Watching his confidence running the ball has been a treat this year. I know that the turnovers are frustrating. Kentucky fans have been heard loud and clear about that. Mm -hmm. It's brutal to watch him throw a pick six. He needs to cut down on that next year. But watching him on some of these runs where he just goes all Jim McMahon, just no regard whatsoever for his body, not protecting himself. He's going to deliver the blow. He's going to try and hurdle you. That hurdle play that he made where he just like leaves a guy in the dust and then just hurdles over another defender. It's like, who is this guy, man? Like, this is, this is awesome. He, um, I love that he, he always, he's got a little bit of juice too when he scores on a rushing touchdown. Yeah. Like he, he gets a different kind of fired up. He gets into the end zone and reminds Louisville fans how many touchdowns he has. He started doing it at one, <laughs> which is incredible on a day yes. in which you have four touchdowns. You think he's just and pointing. You're like, hold on, wait, number one. Oh, he's counting. Oh no. <laughs> I'm going to say something here and I don't want it to be taken out of context. Well, I don't want this to be taken out of context. Okay. He has a little bit, and I'm not saying from a skill standpoint, right. I'm saying from a mindset standpoint, it's got a little bit of Joe Burrow in him. <laughs> that confidence, that, that desire to run the football and to not have any care whatsoever what kind of hit he takes. He's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna get hit, like whatever. Like, 
Big deal. Let's go on to the next play. He can get 20 carries in a game, and and, and he's not going to care. When he runs that 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 draw, that quarterback draw out of shotgun, mm-hmm. sometimes it's sometimes it looks designed. Sometimes it looks like he goes to his first read and then he just tucks it and runs. He has a little bit of that Burrow mindset, and he's got that toughness as a runner. Not Burrow from an accuracy standpoint, from a skill standpoint, or anything like that. But I I, I just kind of love seeing that, and I, I think that he Kentucky fans have to be feeling good about him as the quarterback coming back next year, barring something crazy, unforeseen, should be back. Not sure yet about Wandale and C-Rod. Mm-hmm. Kind of wait and see. Those guys have decisions to make coming up. But overall, the offensive transformation worked. I mean, it really did. Like, I know we had our fun, Liam Collin is, is my doppelganger and all those different things. It, it really worked mm-hmm. in year one. You get eight 100-yard games from C-Rod. That's one away from a program record. Wandell in this game breaks the school's single-season receptions record. You've got a, a quarterback who has at least gotten Kentucky to a middle-of-the-pack passing offense last year. Worst Power 5 passing offense in the country. Yeah. And the transfer, like, it's the offensive identity, it's there. And this is why you make a move like that. Cats are nine and three. They smoked their rival. They they beat Florida. They beat LSU this year. Mm-hmm. You should have a sunny bowl destination. We'll see where that ends up being. But you've got a legit shot for ten wins. Maybe an outside shot at a borderline top fifteen finish, depending on how these rankings shake out. And Kentucky fans, like, look, I, I know Mississippi State, Tennessee, the, those losses. They they were a bummer for different reasons. But if I did my preseason crystal ball and I, I told you, look, I. Kentucky's going to be nine and three at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. You would have been fired up, and, and I had Kentucky at eight and four, so it shows how much I know. But I, I, I think that this this year, as up and down as it's kind of been, like overall, hey, you'll take this. You'll absolutely take this if you're a Kentucky fan. They're fun to watch, man. They're so much more fun to watch than than the years past, even even in the Benny Snell years. This this offense is is balanced, and like they can actually do some things that make you say, oh, is that an NFL guy? Oh, maybe. Yeah, that's an NFL guy as well. And they just, ooh, Louisville did not want to be on the field with them. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, to use your phrase, we got to give Mark Stoops his flowers, right? Because at the end of the yeah. day, you know, it would it was easy to say, oh, well, this is just Benny Snell. This is a one-off team. They can't throw the ball, da-da-da. And we've talked a lot on here about his evolution from this air raid to this ground and pound, and now he's kind of found the middle ground. Um, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the most fun part of this offense, which is strange, is offense, like, featuring Wandale and C-Rod, right? Most fun of it, I think, is Will Levis running the ball. You're absolutely right. I, I think that <laughs> I had to, like, double-check this just to be sure. Yeah, I think I see where you're going with the mentality with Burrow thing. He's obviously more of a threat as a rusher. He, you know, he had uh, almost 400 yards on the ground, nine touchdowns this year. So like, yeah, I had to, cause I, I watched the LSU game, obviously and he looked like freaking, you know, like he was unstoppable. So I was like, how much of that was this year? No, no, he had a really good year. And obviously this game as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think that if you're a Kentucky fan, like you said, it's like, you're always going to have a game or two here. That That is unfortunately also kind of the Stoops brand that you're like, what's going on here. But I hope that guy keeps that job forever, man. I hope he retires there. I really think that he's such a perfect match for that job, that recruiting area. And and you talked about the first round, or not first round, the draft picks. He gets these guys in there, two and three stars, and they leave and they're monsters. The guys that leave Kentucky are like impact players in the NFL. And they're not, you know. So, Josh Pascal. Right, yeah. Like, so some of them, obviously, every every school has like roster filler guys. But, you know, you have these guys that, that leave and it's just like, wow. 
and and what he's done developing these guys, doing more with less, I think he just needs to stay there forever. They need to empty the coffers and keep him because they got a good thing going, man. How about that Josh Pascal uh, dentist commercial? Oh my you god, seen bro. This. I was dying. so awesome. Yeah, so funny. At two, like, I think it was like two and a half minutes or something like yeah. that. Yeah, nil nil at its finest. Just perfect. The exact type of content that I hoped that this new era of college football would create. We got that. Thank you, Josh Pascal, who is just a national treasure. I still enjoy that J-Lo story he told at SEC Media Days. Kentucky fans are going to miss watching that guy because he has been awesome for them. He was awesome in this game. Eight consecutive games with a TFL for that guy. Man. Just a, such a key part of Mark Stoops' team. And um, one last thing on Will, on Will Loves, too. Like, I, I keep... I made the Burrow comp because I also think like the situation that he came into where he's a summer enrollee who starts at a place yeah. which is different than the guy that we're gonna talk about in a minute here, Hendon Hooker, who had an entire spring to be able to get used to the offense. And like when you just come in over the summer and you have to do all that cramming, you don't have that rapport necessarily with your receivers, you need to have that sort of toughness of like, hey, I'm probably gonna take a lot of hits. Because if I don't know, and I'm not saying that he doesn't know the offense, but you can tell sometimes he predetermines some of these reads. And when you have to make some of those tough decisions, you have to have that mindset of like, yeah, I don't, I don't care if I get hit. I'm not necessarily going to be worried about that. And I think he kind of has that. And I'm, I, I can't wait to see what he looks like with a full offseason in this offense. I think they're going to be very active in the transfer portal. Would not be surprised mm -hmm. to see them go after a lot of offensive skill players, especially if, assuming that Liam Cohen is back for Kentucky this upcoming year. Tennessee. Will. The whole state um, of it. Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> the entire state of it. Th this game involved it. Tennessee cruised past Vandy. I don't want to get you too excited here, but we got some sort of good news on Saturday, at least some non news on Saturday. Mm -hmm. Hendon Hooker did not participate in senior day activities. So I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen that he's returning, mm -hmm. but he's got teammates telling him to come back. It sounds like he hasn't made up his mind just yet. Maybe he's going to use the bowl game as kind of a, a launching point. Maybe he's making that decision this week. I don't know just yet, but at the very least, he's got a better chance of coming back next year than a certain Tyon Evans who we found out is in the transfer portal. Will, as you pointed out, perhaps some shade at Josh Heupel with the spelling of his last name in that post? He misspelled what? Josh Heupel's name twice, man. He spelled it Hugh Pal, like H-U-E-P-A-L. I was dying. I just said to you, I just go, Hugh Pal. And you gave me like a wow, you know, that's crazy. And you go, wait a minute. <laughs> I did not process that when I first saw the tweet. I was like, wait a minute, what? And I just didn't change it or anything? Okay, all right. You do you, I guess. Weird move, because I actually thought he had become one of the SEC's better running backs, mm -hmm. but um, fortunately for Tennessee, didn't need him on Saturday. Our guy, Hennon Hooker, he balled out. Cedric Tillman continues to become a thing. This now creates an interesting dynamic with Hennon Hooker, because as I said, as we were talking about earlier, Dylan Gabriel, in the transfer portal, the UCF quarterback decided to leave after just one year in Gus Malzahn's offense. Mm -hmm. And now the question becomes, all right, maybe what happens with Hendon Hooker? Does Tennessee go after Dylan Gabriel? Probably would depend on that decision with how aggressive they are with trying to get him. As someone who watched a good amount of, of UCF, is it fair to say that Dylan Gabriel can play at the SEC level despite his size limitations? 
Yeah, I mean, I think he's a great, um, great like pocket passer style quarterback. He's one of those guys that's a little bit of swagger too. Like you say, he's small. Um, and I, I would wonder, especially coming off a of collarbone, that would be my main concern because, dude, he has a gun. He's, yeah. I like physically, he 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 has a lot of arm strength, and he if you like grabbed like the corner of the image and sized him up, he would look like an NFL quarterback. He's just small. I'm gonna dub the nickname for him before he even announces where his next destination is. I. I'm going to give him the Baby Tua nickname. <laughs> baby Tua. Hawaii. <laughs> We're just skipping lefty. skipping his brother at Maryland, going straight to Dylan Gabriel. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, Talia. You, you are not Baby Tua. Uh, it is somebody outside of your family who is closest like Tua. Tennessee, though, um, you got a chance to get to eight wins, which would match Jeremy Pruitt's best season, and obviously in a much different way with the way that this offense has progressed, and now it becoming – much more attractive for players like Gabriel in the transfer portal. Uh, Tennessee's got a real shot to finish with a top 10 offense in year one with Heupel. Oh, That's yeah. exactly what you could have hoped for if you were a Tennessee fan. Not bad at all to a Mr. Uh, Mr. Arch Manning, although that video, if you saw it, Arch said that he's going to Ole Miss. Uh, take that for what it is. It's like a, one of those things that kind of made the rounds where I think it was his girlfriend or something who took the video and he's like, yeah, tell him you're going to Ole Miss. Um, but what we're basically going to have now with that, with Gabriel, we already saw the way that Lane's reunion in Knoxville played out. Tennessee fans and Ole Miss fans are just going to hate each other mm-hmm. forever because their offenses are so similar, at least for the time being. So SEC's best new rivalry, some are saying. Maybe I'm just saying that. I'm the only one. But I don't know. Get your mustard ready. It's fun. Oh, I mean, dude, after that game, it's it's. It, I think it should be. They should just put that on the schedule. Be like, hey, man, like we've seen... It's like the Egg Bowl. It's like we've seen iteration one. I want to see iteration two. Where do you go from here? <laughs> yes, let's make that a thing. If the pods indeed happen, mm-hmm. let's make sure that we get Tennessee Ole Miss playing on an annual basis. Uh, last SEC game that we'll get to before some a uh, couple of playoff thoughts here to close. Don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this one because South Carolina fans probably did not want to relive this one very much, but got destroyed by Clemson. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's call it what it is. It was ugly, bad. Um, a lot of people saying South Carolina is going to catch Clemson at the perfect time. <laughs> I'm going to give South Carolina fans some hope, though. This game was bad. Offensive mojo out the window. A reminder, Clemson defense had a chance to be really special with Brent Venables and probably could be getting more shine if they had been able to just have a mediocre offense this year, at least mm-hmm. a mediocre passing offense. They didn't have that. But here's my spin zone for South Carolina fans. Your team won two games last year. 125 out of 127 in percentage of returning production, the great stat that Bill Connolly puts together every single year. You had three different starting quarterbacks start multiple games. First time head coach as well. Your regular season over under, three and a half wins. And you're going bowling. Mm -hmm. So just try and look big picture at that. This might have been a nice year to catch Clemson. Again, I say that, but it's also just kind of nice to be able to appreciate that that game wasn't uh, oh hey you're stuck on five wins and now you're not going to a bowl game as a result Mm -hmm. you're going to get those extra weeks of practice you get a chance to win a bowl game for the first time in four years you still have a shot at a legit top 20 recruiting class and most importantly you appear to have the right guys your head coach at a time when so many power five programs are still searching for that you have a guy who if he were an assistant somewhere he would be scooped up tomorrow by a respected Virginia Tech program. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. Mm-hmm. And instead, you have him, and he's not going anywhere, at least 
barring something crazy, to quote Billy Currington, must be doing something right. That's a good thing for South Carolina. And so many times in recent memory, they have felt like, man, it does not feel like this thing is going in the right direction with Will Muschamp. Very, very different vibes, even though the blowout loss happened. Any South Carolina thoughts, or do we want to get to some playoff things? Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, everybody kind of bought into the hype on the SEC side about this being a close game. One thing, um, you know, Clemson is the second best defense in the country. They're buying only Georgia, like in points, uh, points per game. They were really good, and that was that was what I was kind of hanging my head on coming into this year when I said Clemson was going to win a national championship. It's like, man, they got studs. They are really, really good at every level of that defense, and they had so much experience coming back. But you can only do so much if you can't stay on the field with with your offense. And they they wore down in a couple of these games and stretched maybe a little bit too thin. But yeah, they were good. And go figure, Clemson's floor is going to end up being a little bit higher than what we were anticipating a month ago. Yeah, exactly. So point being, you really shouldn't feel bad about this game being the way that it went because it's kind of underrated how good one side of Clemson's football team has been because the other side has been so bad. And it's like, if you're a South Carolina team that's been struggling on offense and you play a defense that in any other year would be like, you know, right there, you know, in the spotlight. Yeah, I mean, I guess retroactively, I guess this does make sense, you know? Yeah, and uh, South Carolina is going to lose some key pieces on, on the defensive side as well. They're going to lose Anikbari. They're going to lose Jalen Foster as well, a guy that we shot it up a couple weeks ago here. But still, encouraging year one. I believe that was the word that Ben Watson used for South Carolina SEC final, saying, trying to sum up one word for every team's regular season. I like that they did that. Interesting thing, exercise that maybe we'll have to do something kind of similar to that um, in the coming weeks here. Let's talk playoffs. The playoff poll on Tuesday. This is how I think it's going to break down. Could be wrong about this, but we'll see. Georgia at one. Michigan slides into that number two spot. Okay. Takes Ohio State spot. Bama at three. Cincinnati at four. Oklahoma State at five after the win in Bedlam against Oklahoma. Six, Notre Dame. Seven, Ohio State. Eight, Ole Miss. Nine, Baylor. Ten, Oregon. We are down to six teams who can make the field. Mm-hmm. That's it. Cut off is Notre Dame. Yep. Anything else is wasting your breath. Not going to happen. You're going to hear all the ESPN talking heads get way too in-depth with it on Tuesday. Ignore it. Last Tuesday show coming up. I don't need any more of those Tuesday shows. Just don't. This could end up being a very boring selection Sunday mm-hmm. a week from today. If Georgia beats Bama, Oklahoma State beats Baylor. If that happens... Your field is pretty cut and dry. It's Georgia 1, Michigan 2. And I should have also said Michigan beating Iowa in the Big Ten Championship. Very weird Big Ten Championship that is. In so many ways, Michigan finally gets to the Big Ten uh, Championship. That's going to set football back so, so far. I'm sure. They're going to like turn up the snow. They're going to put fake snow <laughs> in that game. Open the roof in Indy. There you go. No, that's what I'm saying. They're going to have one of those like ski resort snow machines inside to fill it with snow. <laughs> So we'll have Georgia at one, Michigan at two. Then Oklahoma State would be at three if this chalk scenario unfolds. And then you'd have Cincinnati at four. Yes, I think the selection committee would say, oh, sure, group of five team, you're in. Here's this generational Georgia defense. Have fun with it. And we could get the the rematch from last year's Peach Bowl in Mm -hmm. the first round. It's weird, though. I was looking at this, Will, and this is something that you talked about at the start of the year. You were on this from the jump. 
We talked about defense making a comeback in college football. Mm-hmm. You look at those four teams, if it plays out with chalk in, in conference championship weekend, and if it ends up being Georgia, Michigan, Oklahoma State, Cincinnati, those defenses, man, that, that's what those teams are built on. They are built on their rock-solid defenses. Even Oklahoma State, who historically we don't think about defense when we think about the Cowboys. And yeah. Instead, man, that, that is what they do well. And all four of those teams would say that is kind of the, their backbone, is being able to, to play that quality defense. All of them have NFL-ready guys. Even Cincinnati's got like th- at least three, three to four NFL guys on that defense. But... Um, yeah, I think I think we could see a trend like that play out. I'm, I'm sticking with my belief to that a close loss to Georgia does not get Bama into the field because two loss non-conference champ who was in one score games in the fourth quarter, six of its eight SEC games. It's not dominant. Mm-hmm. It's just not. And I, I think that the resume isn't quite as good as some of Bama fans were hoping it would be at this point in the season. And there's also only one spot currently separating Bama and Cincy. So Bama loses to Georgia. It's just like not going to matter. They're just going to bump Cincinnati out of this. I I don't necessarily think that's the case. Will, do you think a two-loss Bama team has a chance? I think uh, a lot of things depend on that. I also think it matters who is number two. I think, you know, if if after this Mm -hmm. week... If Michigan, because you said Michigan's going to shoot up, we'll see. It's weird because they, I feel like they gave Bama the benefit of the doubt too early and then backed off of them after that Michigan State win for Ohio State, which obviously lasted a week. You know what I'm saying? So they, yeah. I, I hate to say they were wrong, but it's like, I don't know how you could watch this all year. And then anyway, so um, like if you're going to stick with Bama too, you might as well stick with them. I don't think that Ohio State did enough. Anyway, so yeah, I, I, I would, if Bama jumps up to two, you know what I'm saying? And they lose a close game. I, I do think that is possible. If they stay at three and it's a little bit different, if we're talking, you know, a uh, touchdown type of game, maybe not. I, I, I do think they're definitely not out of it, though, for sure. That's going to be a very big popular or very popular topic of discussion. We'll probably have a whole lot of talking heads over the course of the next week, breaking down cases. And that's why I like to be able to I keep a running tally of my my four my four resume factors that I look into, mm-hmm. and you're, you'll never believe this, but FPI is not one of them. Wow, FPI slander! Thank God, uh, <laughs> I'm sick of the FPI. <laughs> don't don't get into FPI or whatever formula they use for strength of schedule. Um, not my thing. Mm-hmm. Again, it's margin of victory against Power Five opponents. It's wins against power five teams with a winning record it is top 25 wins it is top 10 wins those four things i can point to all those things and i can say yep i i see right there that that's exactly what you did easy way to break down your resume and not necessarily it it definitely doesn't necessarily like if you're so what i kind of like about that system and we don't need to talk a whole lot about this but what i kind of like about it is if you even if you're cincinnati yeah, like you see some of these things, some of the flaws of, okay, yeah, you might have this march of victory against a Power 5 team, but you only have one win against a Power 5 team with a winning record, so therefore, that's going to hurt you. I'll probably change it this week to Power 5 teams who are going to a bowl game, just because mm-hmm. that's easier at this point. Yeah. Like you're a Power 5 team who went 6-6 six and six at some, or something like that. So we'll break all of that stuff down. We'll have some reactions to the playoff rankings on Tuesday. Probably going to talk a little bit more coaching stuff. Probably going to have more developments with that. We're going to do... I think the plan is I got to reach out to to my guy here who um, I've been trying to figure out a time for him to be able to come on, but uh, somebody who's going to come on and talk 
bull projection stuff as well. Somebody I know for, I've known for a few years, uh, one of my favorite people in this business. We will also, of course, preview the SEC championship with Georgia and Alabama. Hold on, call if it real quick. Not, By the next podcast, ooh. Florida job and LSU job, are they both filled? Yes, and I'm saying that I'm saying that in the likely event that by the time people are listening to this part of the podcast, they've already heard the top of the podcast in which I have outlined <laughs> one of those jobs and why it was filled and who it was filled by. So people are going to hear this and think, oh, that's that's very weird. Again, we're, we're finishing recording at 11.45. Don't hate on us, all right? We have a million things to do on this Sunday. There's so many different things going on in college football. We can't necessarily just wait to record until after one of these decisions may or may not come down. There's no definitive timeline, but it's... It's already happened. By the time people are listening to this, they know that it's already happened. I put my foot in my mouth. Listen, the real rivalry is me versus Connor's Google Doc. <laughs> At the end of the day, right. the real rivalry, I'm just going uh, scorched path of that thing every week. Anyway. <laughs> hey, we kept it to 13 pages this week. That's not bad, right? Heck yeah, man. <laughs> if you have not, leave us a five-star review. Go subscribe to this podcast. If you have not already, go subscribe to our newsletter. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored and Saturday Lives Forever. Wherever you get your podcast, join the Facebook group. Hear your name read on air with Figuring It Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.